Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. It is a great pleasure and privilege to join you every week in your earbuds, in your cars, in your homes and offices. We thank you very, very much. We also thank you for your notes and your feedback, your texts and emails. Uh, we do read them. We think about them, and we shape each, week, each week's shows as thoughtfully as we can, taking in all of your feedback. So we thank you very much, friend, and got some very kind words from last week's show. This week, terrific forecast for you. Uh, we, first off, for our market segment, we are going to Chicago. Calamos uh, Investment Management manages tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars. Jim Baca is the president, going to be joining us in a minute. Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and the Congress. And, oh, my goodness, do we have a lot to talk about? And are we going to have a shutdown or not? It doesn't look like it, but listen to Mahaffey. And maybe a Brexit or maybe not a Brexit. So remember, Dan said that Theresa May would stay in office uh, and that there would be a referendum vote to the Britons and they would vote to stay in to Brenter. So to Brenter or to Brexit is what we're going to talk about with Mahaffey. And then John Morris from Crestwood Advisors coming up to a terrific uh, guy from Boston. We're going to Boston to hear uh, a little bit more on the investment perspective tonight at this crucial time where we find the S&P 500 up almost 17 percent from the lows in December. Really very good rally. Now, remember, December, we saw the S&P pull back that full 20 percent. And when it made those lows uh, right around Christmas, so uh, we haven't really gotten right back up there. But when we look at the technicals and the 200-day moving average, today's gains take us right up to that moving average line, which technically acts as a bit of resistance. It'll be interesting to see if stocks can move higher and break those lines. Uh, it also takes markets to about 17 times earnings, which means when we were 20% lower. Actually, the uh, price to earnings multiple was about 14 and a half times. We talked about that on the forecast. We said that it was inexpensive. Jim Urio was pounding the table that we should all be buying everything. Far agreed with him, said when things are down, this is when you buy. Uh, so let's see what we do when things are up now, rallied off the bottom, bouncing into some resistance. Uh, what should investors do? We've got two great experts tonight in Baca and Morris who are going to talk to us about what they're telling their billions of dollars worth of clients. First, please remember that at the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, we believe, and this is really important, I tell you every week, that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling fearful or ebullient or like you want to go outside and throw up, please go outside and throw up. But don't start changing your portfolio around because uh, you're getting nervous. It's, it, it's just it will cost you money every time. Promise. Jim Baca is the president of Calamos Wealth Management. He's a member of the investment committee, 27 years in the business. He has he, he is in charge of the strategic direction of the firm. Graduate, of course, proud graduate, and a baseball player, by the way, Arizona State University. He has every license you can imagine. He's accredited investment fiduciary. He sits on a bunch of different 
boards. Uh, he's on a bunch of charity uh, boards, board of directors at the Rush Copley Hospital, board of trustees at All Saints Catholic Academy, Vistage International, Executive Club of Chicago. Welcome to the Farcast, Jim Baca. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. Well, we're glad you're here, Jim. So, Jim, we've seen this market do pretty well here in the beginning of 2019. Tell us what you think. Are we have more to come? Should we be nervous? Should we be uh, optimistic? What are you seeing through your view at Calamos? Well, I mean, Calamos is a firm that uh, was really founded with managing investment risk within portfolios. So, you know, we've been telling our clients for the last few years to expect volatility. 2017, uh, we didn't see much volatility. And uh, for 2018, definitely volatility came back. So it came back, back in a big way. So as you, you know something, start, Jim, you know, I actually looked yeah. at it. I looked at those numbers. In 2017, there were eight days that saw the S&P move 1%. In 2018, there were 64 days where the S&P had a 1% move. That's a lot of volatility, to your point. There really was. That's a lot of volatility, and especially in the fourth quarter. And as investors, as you pointed out a second ago, as investors, the worst thing you can do is make changes in your asset allocation based on short-term volatility. So, you know, we think, uh, you know, we're constructive on the markets. We think the markets are fairly valued in here. Um, we thought it was definitely an overreaction in December, uh, some of the volatility that we saw in the markets. Uh, and at the end of the day, the market uh, is going to follow the fundamentals. And fundamentals are showing that uh, economic growth is still fairly strong. You know, 2.5% growth, uh, 3% growth, that's not a, not a bad growth rate. So, But the market was digesting not only trade wars and political issues, but um, other factors started creeping in. So... You know, volatility provides opportunities. So volatility, we look at it as uh, uh, as opportunity. And definitely, if you're a long-term investor, you shouldn't let short-term gyrations in the market affect your long-term asset allocation. Boy, is that that is fabulous advice and real wisdom from a lot of years of experience, uh, over 25 years of experience for Jim Baca. I agree with everything that Jim just said, uh, which probably makes Jim a little bit nervous. Okay, Jim, tell me what we do. <laughs> Tell me what we do. Jim and I have been friends a long time. It's a great privilege to have him on the forecast. Uh, what do we do, Jim, when we have new money today? The new cash account arrives today for a few million dollars uh, or a few hundred thousand dollars. What do you tell that client today, and what areas uh, does Calamos find interesting right now? So as you, as you see continued volatility, you know, we're uh, – we're looking at a few different areas of, uh, of opportunity for our clients. So as we look at, you know, our history has, a, has some roots in the area of convertible bonds, and it's an effective tool as you have uh, increased volatility in the markets, as interest rates uh, start increasing a little bit, but as you have uh, fairly strong equity markets as well. So, you know, we look at fixed income, and instead of just having all your money in treasury bonds or, or corporate bonds, we'll utilize uh, – we utilize convertible bonds. We utilize. Okay, Jim, uh, let me market. stop for a second. If, if sure. Fred and Ethel are listening and they don't yeah. know what a convertible bond is, sure. would you tell us what a convertible sure. bond is and Absolutely. why we might want to own one? Absolutely. Yeah, quite simply, it's a corporate bond that can be converted to common stock at a certain price. So you really have a little bit of the best of both worlds. You've got the surety, you've got the maturity date of, uh, of a bond. Uh, convertible bonds typically have a uh, uh, shorter maturity date, so you're not locking in for long-term, uh, long-term terms. But So it might be a five-year bond. That's right. 
typically about okay. a five-year bond. But you have the upside that if the markets continue to go up, you can participate in the upside in the market. So it's a little bit of having uh, your cake and eating it, too, when you have that income stream from that bond. But then you also have the ability that if uh, if the stock if the underlying stock does well, you can participate in that upside as well. And so, for tax purposes, it counts as interest income, doesn't it? It does. It does. So, you know, you're going to see uh, some interest income in there as well. But it's an effective tool as you look at your fixed income allocation to take and maybe create an enhanced fixed income part of your allocation. So it shouldn't be for the entire fixed income allocation, but if you want to try to find ways to minimize some of that interest rate risk, you want to minimize some of the volatility um, on the fixed income side of your portfolio, it's definitely one consideration that you can look at. Any areas you'd stay away from? Yeah, I mean, we're still, uh, you know, we're still cautious on the international markets. Obviously, valuations show that the, uh, you know, the international markets are, are cheaper than the U.S. markets. But, you know, we're still underweight uh, international, the developed and the emerging markets. So, you know, the emerging markets are going to continue to be uh, volatile, especially with the trade talks. And uh, that's going to hit some of the emerging markets a little harder. But, you know, we're still a little bit underweight, uh, the foreign markets in here. You know, we're cautious now in high yield, so, you know, high yield's been a great place to get a little bit of additional income in here, but, you know, we're a little bit more cautious in the high yield area. Um, so, you know, we still like the U.S. equity market. You know, you can uh, you can still get some uh, some modest returns in the U.S. equity market, and uh, we still think as the economy continues to grow, uh, that there's definitely more upside in the market. So, um, so we're Still more upside in the market. market. So. So we were saying, Jim, when we started tonight, that the market's up almost 17 percent from those lows. We know that year to date it's up about nine or nine and a half percent, something like that. I haven't checked this evening's closing figures, but just year to date, nine percent is not a bad is not a bad year. How much higher do you think we can go before year end? It's tough to predict, but yeah, it's been a good year so far in the markets and. You know, we're still, uh, you know, I mean, you could still leak out a little bit, uh, a little more in return. But overall, what what investors are looking through right now is some of that volatility. And they're seeing that the overall economy is still fairly strong. So you don't want to make uh, knee-jerk reactions. Um, You know, our clients were pretty patient in December, even though the market uh, had a significant correction. So, you know, we were, uh, you know, we were looking at it as an opportunity. And if people had cash back in December, you know, obviously a great uh, a great time to uh, to get in. So, but you know, again, it's been a good year in the market so far. But you know, as uh, as the economic fundamentals continue to improve, you know, there's still uh, likely a little bit more upside to this market. Jim Baca from Calamos Wealth Management in Chicago, Illinois. They have offices all over the country. A very fine firm, one of the finest guys I know in the business. A real pros pro. Jim Baca, thank you for being on the Farcast. When we come back, we're going to have Dan Mahaffey, the, our senior uh, political strategist for the Farcast, is going to be right with us uh, when we return. Stay with us on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. 
Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr, reporting and broadcasting and recording and everything from Naples, Florida this evening. Uh, we have our uh, tried and true, fabulous crew in uh, Chatter Studios in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dan Mahaffey is there tonight, our senior political analyst for the Farcast from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Remember, uh, a Georgetown undergraduate, Georgetown master's degree, expert in security and in China and well, studied in China and speaks Mandarin Chinese. And we're talking about trade wars with China. We're talking about deals. Dan Mahaffey, welcome back to the Farcast. Good to be here again, Michael. It's great that you're here and you're so great to do this. And I always learn so much when you're on, Dan. So we, it looks like we have a deal and we're not going to have a shutdown, Dan. Tell me about this deal. And, and do, are, is either side happier than the other? Well, I think the Democrats are happier that the White House got pushed back away from the, the original amount of money they wanted. If you actually look at this over the past year, the White House originally wanted uh, $25 billion for border security. And at the end of the day, if this deal goes through, they're getting $1.4 billion. Um, so it's it's really pushing back on the administration's uh, position that they need this wall across the southern border and putting a little more of a parameter around uh, strengthening existing fences, uh, better technology, better scanning at ports of entry, and, and really showing that uh, that the the plan for the southern border uh, for security is not necessarily this idea of of a barrier, but better securing many of the ports of entry that we already have. So the president was there yesterday, right? And I and apparently there was some a little bit of a lean back from the mayor of El Paso, who said we don't have the problems that the president suggests we have. Well, El Paso has its own issues with uh, border crossings and trafficking coming in, but it's not a matter of barriers. It's you know, some people will say, oh, well, El Paso is a, a hub for drug cartels, but it's the same reason O'Hare is a hub for American Airlines or the same reason you're in Naples. It's all location. And uh, what that comes down to is the the fact that uh, it's a major land port there, and it almost reinforces what people have been saying who are saying we don't need a wall uh, because there right. are already barriers in El Paso, but it comes through in vehicles, it comes through in smuggling, and let's look at technology, let's look at more border agents to, to monitor that traffic. So uh, we, uh, we have this uh, a, a billion and change or a billion and a half for the border wall, uh, uh, which is uh, down from significantly from what the uh, White House was asking. We don't actually have a deal yet. The president says he's not happy. Do you think we we get to a deal here? Do we avoid a shutdown, Dan? Well, I think we avoid a shutdown. The the president's going to make sure to make a, a lot of noise about this, and and a lot of his friends like Sean Hannity and uh, Ann Coulter are already uh, critiquing this deal. Ann Coulter called it his yellow New Deal. Um, so they're right. not pleased with this in the in the right wing media. Uh, but ultimately, I don't think there's the appetite in the White House to go through another shutdown, uh, even if the president wanted another one to kind of reset the agenda. Uh, once this deal right. is out from Congress, uh, the White House will own it if they veto it or push back on it. So if they are going to do more money, I would look to see it coming from what they try and reprogram, uh, which is also going to be controversial because they'll be pulling from uh, areas like disaster relief funds for Florida and Puerto Rico and Texas. I see. 
okay, so it's coming from other places that are going to pursue the agenda. They might take money from other places. Yeah. We have two other big things to talk about, Dan. Bob Lighthizer, very good friend of mine for a long time, is in China on the ground right now. They are negotiating, and the president has suggested that maybe, maybe, he will back off of the tariff imposition, the deadline coming up for tariffs uh, imposing them, uh, if he hears that progress is being made. What's going on in China? What is Lighthizer trying to get done? Very bright guy, Bob Lighthizer, I promise. Well, what we have now is that we've already gotten the Chinese to buy more agriculture, perhaps open up to uh, more purchases of U.S. manufactured goods, uh, knowing that the White House is going to look, and particularly President Trump is going to look at the trade deficit. Uh, but the thorny area we're getting into is the actual structural issues of the Chinese economy, uh, state support for industries, as well as our issues with forced technology transfer and intellectual property theft, uh, which is the underpinning of how China is trying to close the gap and surpass the United States on key technologies. They're just stealing it. They do. They steal it. You can, uh, if anyone, uh, you know, has run out of their uh, sleeping pills, I suggest they go to the Department of Justice website and they can read the indictments of how uh, Chinese espionage has taken place at a, at a range of companies, particularly uh, one case involved uh, advanced semiconductors, uh, but how a combination of human espionage and hacking is used by the Chinese uh, to get trade secrets and help move their firms up the economic ladder. Okay. So uh, there, the the issues the issues remain. We are making some uh, progress. Um, do you think that Lighthizer can do enough to, uh, I guess, show progress that will satisfy the president to back off from these tariffs? I think we can, and I also think it's worth remembering that there are even some in China who want to make these deals. And, and not necessarily on technology, but at least with market access and reducing some of the uh, the aid to the state companies that takes place, uh, because they see the pressure from the United States as being helpful for them in Beijing to try and push for their own reforms of the economy at a time when the Chinese economy is slowing. Dan, is the toothpaste so far out of the tube in terms of what the Chinese have already taken from the U.S. and, and the rest of the world in terms of technology and artificial intelligence and all these other pharmaceutical advancements and proprietary stuff, is it so far gone that no matter what sort of concessions we get from the tariffs and these negotiations, that we're really not going to be able to correct much? I mean, is, is there something we can really get done here for the U.S.? Well, what we have to do is kind of set aside what they're doing and understand they're going to approach it from that way. Um, you know, work with allies. I think the way that the United States and multiple other allied countries have pushed back against Huawei is an example of how the international coordinated pressure uh, will work. Huawei is the phone company. The phone company, yes, the five G networks. Huawei. Um, I yes. think on the on AI and other issues, it just is a reminder to ourselves that we just can't keep assuming that we have this incumbent advantage and need to kind of kick our own butts in order to get you know things back into basic research cooperation between government and the private sector on on technology policies things like that okay uh dan uh what are you are you is there any one other thing before i leave china is there any one thing we should be listening for when lighthizer talks i think when you hear him talk about things like uh structural changes to the structural reforms structural changes to the chinese economy uh intellectual property protection those are the key words 
I'm going to be hearing how he speaks about that um, or doesn't speak about it to gauge how the uh, negotiations have gone. Can't wait to talk more about this next week. Brexit. Theresa Mays being accused of stalling uh, as she was over in Europe making some progress, we think. Stalling is what uh, her opposition in Britain says. Uh, You have said before that you think this is going to be referred back to the British people for another vote and that it won't go through. Tell us what she's doing. Tell us what's going on here. Does Brexit happen? Have you changed your opinion? I think that I'm a little less sanguine about necessarily another vote taking place, although I would not shut the door on that. I think they're going to have to delay this withdrawal process uh, and push that deadline back. Even strong conservatives who want to leave the EU are, are pushing for that. Uh, but it's basically one of those uh, instances where a uh, unstoppable force is meeting an immovable object. The British uh, keep insisting on reopening a deal that the rest of Europe says is closed, uh, and they're understanding that you know you don't quite get to leave the club and then dictate the terms to the the old membership. Well, and tell us, you know, for the real conservatives in Britain, and we've talked about this before on the forecast. What what do they really? Why do they? Why are they so desperate to leave the EU? What's the big objection? Well, they have always seen Brussels as this uh, supranational bureaucratic uh, state of super state that uh, impinges upon British sovereignty. They want to be able to make trade deals uh, with other countries outside the EU framework. They have this vision of Britain kind of becoming a Singapore of the North Atlantic. Uh, But they're really tearing up a lot of the the economic firmament that they developed uh, with their partners across the channel. Um, and they talk about trade deals, but given the, the way they've approached the deals they're already in, I wouldn't be uh, getting on the next plane to London to sign a deal with the British anytime soon. Yeah, amen. Amen to that. Uh, one other thing I'll point out back to China, though, I understand that uh, I understand that the president doesn't like trade deficits, but the dollar is about as strong as it's been uh, in a long while. I saw uh, the dollar trading at like a dollar twelve versus the euro a couple of years ago. Laura and I were over in uh, were in Europe, and and it was a dollar thirty seven um, to the uh, to the dollar. So a uh, dollar twelve when it's a dollar twelve, and uh, you can go to Paris and buy that same dinner for one hundred and twelve dollars that cost me one hundred and thirty seven dollars uh, two years ago. Everything's cheaper. Uh, conversely, the French think this is ce n'est pas très bon because when they come here to the United States, uh, all of a sudden the dinner costs them 137 bucks and they don't like it. Yeah, they, they so think they're it's buying less of ours. Huh? C'est une guerre économique, as they would say. <laughs> une guerre économique, oui. In which they have very limited tools because they're part of the EU, right? I mean, the, the French, they can't fight back if they don't fight through the EU. Um, so, uh, but when you see how much cheaper it is for us to buy whatever we want to buy, given the strength of the dollar, makes all those foreign, go- foreign goods, meals, services a lot cheaper, significantly cheaper, 20-some-odd percent cheaper than two years ago. So we're buying more of it. And their stuff, our stuff, is now 20% more expensive, at least, than it was two years ago. And they're buying less of it. And that creates a trade deficit. But it doesn't mean our economy's weak. And it doesn't mean we're getting screwed. So I'm sorry, but I think the president might get more upset the way these numbers go. And by the way, economically, you see trade deficits swell during periods of an economic expansion, during 
periods of recession and economic contraction, you, you, you don't. They, they go the other way. The trade deficit moves the other way, and it then turns into a surplus. Anyway, my, I'm, I'm stepping down off my soapbox now, Dan. <laughs> what are you going to be watching in the week ahead before we get to talk to you again next week? Well, we'll still be watching this, uh, the negotiations in Congress uh, and what the White House says. Uh, if Congress does have to push back on a veto, it's going to come down to a whip count to see if they can get the two-thirds to override the veto. And that's when I have to take the socks and shoes off and, and start bringing the toes to the whip count as well. I hear you. All right. Well, uh, our friend Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, thank you so much for being with us again this week, Dan. Ladies and gentlemen, when we come back, we're going to be here with John Morris from Crestwood Advisors, one of the best guys I know. Stay with us on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information, or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com, or call me at 202-530-5608. You're listening to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Forecast. I am Michael Farr. We're down in Naples, Florida. The core crew, of course, is in the Chatter studio in Washington, D.C. tonight. I will go ahead and, and let you in on a little bit of uh, inside information. It is a lot uh, nicer and warmer here in Naples, Florida, than it is in the Chatter studio this evening. I'm not uh, missing being there, but I will be there next week uh, in studio. Really looking forward to it. Please come by and see us in Chatter next week as we record. That would be a lot of fun to see everybody. That And we've seen so many of you who get to stop by uh, uh, during happy hour as we're as – we're, um, uh, recording. So, uh, segment three, what a great forecast we're having this evening. Jim Baca, segment one, the great Dan Mahaffey, our political analyst, uh, terrific, explaining what's going on in Washington and China and in Britain, also in Europe, that maybe they're not so happy with the strength of this dollar. Now, our third segment, what a great treat to welcome my friend John Morris from Crestwood Advisors. John is a co-founding partner of the firm he manages the client relationships and the new business imprint. John is a pro's pro. He's been in the business a long time. B.A. from Kenyon College, really good school if you couldn't get into Sewanee, and uh, M.B.A. from the Olin School of Business at Babson College, member of the Boston Estate Planning Council, lives in Needham, uh, Massachusetts, with five, count them, five children. Hey, John Morris, welcome to the Farcast. Pleasure to be with you, Michael. That's quite an introduction. Thank you. Uh, you and all your five children are always welcome on the on the on the park. What are the age ranges before we move forward here of the five Morris children? Uh, the oldest, twenty-three; youngest, fourteen. Wow, twenty-three to fourteen. And where's your twenty-three-year-old? Out of school now? 
Manhattan. He's uh, joined the ranks of uh, the consultant world uh, and uh, lives in Manhattan. He's, uh, he's launched, as they say, and off the payroll. God bless you. God bless him. Isn't that wonderful news? Uh, mine are 25 and 26, and indeed they are launched. So, John, looking at markets, we've had a pretty good year here in the past month. Uh, markets are up, you know, some nine or nine and a half percent since January 1, almost 17 percent since the December lows. What do you make of valuations here? Well, as you say, Michael, this has been a very positive rally here for the first five weeks of 2019 and, frankly, modestly surprised. But I think there's a couple of things in play here. One, the Federal Reserve who came out with a little more dovish tone a couple of weeks ago, which gave investors yep, a, yep. a little bit more of a, a positive uh, sentiment toward markets. And plus, valuations uh, were very reasonable on a going forward price to earnings multiple at the end of calendar 2018 because of the market pullback. Because of the pullback in the fourth quarter of 2018, we view and price earnings multiple at the end of calendar 18 was about 14 to 15 times earnings. Uh, this has uh, been a welcomed uh, return and sort of stability to markets, and we actually think uh, stocks are reasonably priced right now. Not overly expensive, but reasonable. Reasonable. Okay. So we've, we're up now, and we're, you know, 16 and a half, maybe 17 times earnings. That's pretty much on the historical average. Where do you think we go from here? I mean, all the forecasts, John, I'm hearing are for two, two and a quarter, maybe two and a half percent GDP growth. If the economy is growing at two and a quarter, two and a half percent GDP, first, do you agree with those sort of growth estimates for 2019? And how far can stocks actually grow? How much can corporate earnings grow when the underlying economy is plodding along at two and a half percent? We actually think stocks can grow from here. Now, we've had a very swift move in the first five weeks of 2019, as I mentioned earlier. And we would generally agree with the GDP growth in that range of 2 to 2.5%. Two this is a reasonable environment with earnings growth basically coming out of a quarter of the 5 to 8% range. It's anyone's guess sort of where we end up at the end of 2019. But our sentiment is that we end up positively, but with some gyrations and some volatility between now and the end of December. So volatility, you think, is here with us for a while longer? Absolutely. And I think we'll see more of what we had seen last year. We had the first, uh, for call it six weeks of 2018, was quite volatile. And then, of course, as we all know and experienced in the fourth quarter of 2018, uh, incredibly challenging volatility. But we've moved so much here. I don't know, from our perspective, we don't believe that necessarily uh, we've hit the high point for the year, but we could also retrace uh, some of what we've made uh, year to date. But we'll end up positively. So, John, when you say retrace, let me just translate for a quick second. You mean we could have a bit of a pullback, given that we're up almost 17 percent from the lows, that we're up over 9 percent year to date. It would be reasonable, for, in your experience, is my question, that we could, that we could have a pullback here uh, and, and maybe drift how much lower, 5 percent lower, 10 percent lower? Would that be a surprise to you to go 10 percent down from here? It would not, and not necessarily due to economic reasons, Michael, but more because of the geopolitical environment. And I think one of the unknowns that certainly investors generally are looking toward is some kind of resolution with China. And I think if um, the market is perhaps pricing in some optimism there, if we should uh, be disappointed with the end result or no result at all, our view would be that we would see some kind of pullback. And it could be uh, quite severe in the short term, but, but short-lived. Well, it's morning in China right now, and 
uh, Bob Lighthizer is there and negotiating. Uh, the president said that perhaps he will hold off on imposing these tariffs if Lighthizer indeed can make some reasonable, reasonable progress. He, did, he said he wouldn't be happy about it. But as we look at these things uh, as investors, John, tell us what, do, what should China mean to uh, an average U.S. investor? The 60-year-old couples who are still anticipating retirement, who have money in the market, what should they be thinking about the news of uh, the, the headlines about these Chinese negotiations vis-a-vis -vis their portfolios? I think for the 60-year-old uh, couple or clients that are at or getting near retirement, it does present some potential challenges and opportunities. I think if we're looking both beyond the intermediate or even short intermediate term, it's less important. Look, we've lived with a challenged Chinese relationship and a trade relationship for some time, and markets have operated quite efficiently. Our view is that there's still we don't need to necessarily own businesses that are doing business in China. We can own terrific domestic companies that have the preponderance of their revenue and earnings generated in the United States, and that could be across any number of sectors. Uh, but I think China is more of a, a, a longer-term issue that, you know, has shorter-term implications. Uh, again, I think for those who are invested in that 60-year-old range, hold the course. If you've got a thoughtful asset allocation that's been in place for some time, our view is don't change what, you know, the heading that, in which you're set but make tactical changes underneath within the portfolio that reflect appropriate prospects and opportunities. I think really good advice, John, from a pro's pro, ladies and gentlemen, I promise. You know, as we're talking about these headlines that tend to be waffling markets, John, we've also been following this shutdown uh, over the past couple of months. It's been very hard, certainly for those people who have been furloughed. I saw today statistics that almost three quarters of them uh, had to borrow money in one way or another uh, to make up for those lost paychecks. A lot of 70 percent of Americans, of American workers, live paycheck to paycheck. We're, let's go back to that Fred and Ethel 60-year-old couple who are uh, nearing retirement, and they're hearing about the shutdown, and they're hearing maybe it's going to be a headwind to economic growth. Are these headlines, it's tough to know which ones to pay attention to or not pay attention to. Can we ignore this stuff, John, or do we need to pay attention? It's a great question, Michael. And I think our view is that you, while it's very difficult to not pay attention to what's going on in Washington, either at the legislative branch, the White House level, the shutdowns, it's really best to block that type of information out. Clearly, if the, if the government should shut down again, we know it won't last forever. But it might very well give us an opportunity, perhaps, to buy some good quality stocks or other securities at discounts to what were you know, presently or previously priced. We look at that as a short-term opportunity. Again, I think most Americans, and particularly the Fred and Ethel, are concerned about what's going on in Washington. But the reality is that, again, with a thoughtful investment approach that's sound in nature, uh, good investing will always prevail. So let's take a look quickly and move over to interest rates. The 10-year Treasury, we've seen the Federal Reserve sort of change its tone. I want to hear what you think about that, uh, whether you believe the Fed will stay on the sidelines for how long this year. But 2.69% for the 10-year U.S. Treasury, 0.13% for the German 10-year, and uh, actually a negative 
return, a negative yield. If you invest your money in a Japanese 10-year bond, you, they will give you back less than you give them. You give them $1,000 and they hold your money for 10 years, you're going to get back less. It's absolutely mind-boggling to think about negative returns. It's not much easier to think about 0.13% per year for 10 years from the German government. But what do you make of interest rates? What do you think is going on with the Fed? Give us, give us your read there. And is this one of those bellwethers, one of those canaries in the coal mine that should have us worried about recession as these short rates move up? It's an interesting sort of mosaic of we think about global interest rates that you've just shared, Michael, and clearly would make the U.S. Treasury the most attractive from an investment standpoint. But I think the bond market is telling us a couple of things. One, that inflation's in check, and that's important to purchasing power and also in, you know, our exposure to equities. I think also, the fact that the Federal Reserve has come out more recently with a dovish tone that they may or be data dependent, and we may see a modest rise in the Fed funds rate this year, has given investors obviously another opportunity to look at uh, good quality equities. Our view is that we may very well be in an environment here for some time with steady, not very substantial economic growth, but again, in that 2% range for some period of time. It's just hard to see yet on the horizon where a recession may kick in. And again, because interest rates remain historically low, uh, it makes uh, this environment, again, probably pretty attractive if one needs to own treasuries, at least own U.S. treasuries because of their security, but also the fact that um, interest rates remain sort of benign and, and don't seem to be any threat of kind of going down in price and rising in yield anytime soon. John Morris making sense as ever. One final thing, John, I see a headline tonight that doesn't make any sense to me, and perhaps it'll make sense to you. I bet it won't, but go ahead. Uh, you, if it does, you let me know. Republican Senator Marco, Marco Rubio has joined Democrats in attacking share buybacks, this chorus of Democratic voices uh, that are objecting to the use of corporate cash for stock buybacks, as uh, with the argument saying it just makes the rich richer, and somehow it's not corporate governance. And I guess I don't understand why, if that's the best use of cash, if that's the best investment, if I invest in a company and I want them, I want that company to go up, I want it to do well, I want it to grow, and I want them to use that cash as well as they can, rather than give it back to me and have me pay taxes on it in a dividend. Buy your stock if you can continue to grow it. Uh, why does why does that why is that a bad thing? And I don't understand why that only benefits the rich. It's not a bad thing, Michael. You're absolutely right. It's more of a populist position that seems to be emerging in this country, whereas somehow. Um companies are enriching wealthy equity investors. Keep in mind, as we all know, equities are not just owned by in individuals, but they are owned by institutions and pensions and unions and all kinds of uh, potential investors. And it benefits all of those companies. Plus, why should we restrict uh, a free trading uh, U.S. business in this case from doing what they see is appropriate for their broad shareholders or stakeholders or employees? And it can think of nothing kind of more challenging, really, from a, a capitalistic standpoint than restricting corporate America, in this case, 
from what they can do with their free cash flow. It just doesn't I couldn't agree with up. you more. I couldn't agree with you more. I just I, I, it sounds like communism to me. If you're going to start telling corporations what they have to do with their cash flow, it's not our government's business to tell them how to deploy their cash. It just makes no sense to me at all. You know, John, my friend, your friend, Larry Kudlow, used to say that free market capitalism is the best path to prosperity. And if he ever, if, if that could go on his tombstone, his epitaph forever, I think he's made just a great contribution to the U.S. economy by reminding us all that free market capitalism is a hugely, enormously powerful force. Absolutely. Could not agree more. John Morris is a founding partner of Crestwood Advisors. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Farcast. Thank you, Michael. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the Farcast again this week. What a terrific Farcast with my friend Jim Baca from Calamos. We brought you the views from Chicago, the views from Boston with my friend John Morris, our own Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Washington, D.C. Uh, markets are okay. The economy's growing. It's not rip-roaring, snorting, but it's doing just fine. So uh, keep your powder dry. Stay the course. And join us again next week on the Farcast in Naples, Florida. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We're always happy to hear from you. You can reach us at Farcast at FarMiller.com. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security this week, you haven't. Farcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope that you find the information useful. But before you make any investing decision, we always recommend that you do your research and discuss with your financial advisor. If we can be of any help at Far Miller in Washington, please give us a call at 202-530-5600 or email us at invest at farmiller.com.